0: In this world there are more stories than pictures on Pinterest. Some are shabby chic, some are quilts. Some are like, "You know that's photoshopped. But they're all worth the snide envy. So open your Etsy store wide and listen. Welcome to Brushtown Stories, episode 27 from the diary of Bernard Glauch. They call it Paradise.
1: From the diary of Bernard Glauch, World Traveller, Hawaii is a strange place. It's a far-flung outpost of America, but little of it felt like the land I'd left so long ago. We'd docked in Honolulu a few weeks past. In that time, we'd met with a smuggler named Fancy Dan Fancy, who was part Cheyenne, part Osage, and all scoundrel. He had come to Hawaii to escape some dark business in Oklahoma. We met him at a small hut near the ocean— He was cutting raw fish and eating various pieces. He said it was a delicacy. I had come to the island of Oahu with Chapman Heath, my comrade in exploration, to finally end our great quest to find the Ark of the Expulsion. The Ark was said to contain the first defecation of Adam after the fall, and thus this fecal matter would contain the seeds of the fruit of knowledge." With these seeds, we could replant and regrow the tree of knowledge and learn the secrets of the world. Also, I was looking for proof of pre-American denti culture, but it was mostly about the Ark at the moment. We had learned that the Ark was taken to China centuries ago, and we'd assumed we'd need to travel to mainland China to retrieve it. But it seemed the feces of Adam was no longer in that celestial kingdom. Originally, the Ark had been moved to the Summer Palace in Peking, along with other treasures during the Qing Dynasty. But the palace was overrun and looted by the British Army during the Second Opium War. A soldier sold the Ark to a Portuguese merchant in Macau. Later, this merchant lost the Ark in a game of poker to a young American named Pittsburgh Moxon. Moxon was an adventurer who claimed islands in the Pacific for the U.S. under the Guano Islands Act. The Guano Islands Act stated that, and I quote, "...whenever any citizen of the United States discovers a deposit of guano on any island, rock, or quay, not within the lawful jurisdiction of any other government, and takes peaceful possession thereof, may, at the discretion of the President, be considered a territory appertaining to the United States." Guano, of course, being seabird or bat dung and a source of saltpeter used in gunpowder and also a good fertilizer. The U.S. used this act to claim a small collection of islands around the world. Captain Markson was a man of odd tastes, which explains why he'd want possession of the fecal box, though he didn't know its true purpose. Rather, he thought it was an ancient type of pillow and didn't realize it contained a treasure within. The cause of this mix-up, regarding its purpose, is tied to a false historical book published in 1903 called Pillows Throughout History, which said that wooden pillows were common and that true men of grit would use them. This caused a small fad of new wooden pillows being sold en masse until it was discovered that the author of the fraudulent book was none other than the famed Michigan lumber baron, Wellington R. Burt, who published the tome to sell more lumber. This wasn't even the most unusual timber-selling gambit perpetrated by Burt, who, when he died, was famous for the spite clause in his will that said his estate wouldn't be paid out until all his children and grandchildren were dead. In any event, Captain Pittsburgh Moxon had taken the arc of the expulsion to Fitzburgh Island, a small rocky atoll he discovered, named and claimed for the U.S. in a remote patch of the Pacific. It was said that he decided to stay there, drinking the blood of gulls and yelling at whales. Apparently, he believed that after the Civil War, many high-level Confederates created a fake whale that was also some sort of underwater ship and used it to escape and practice the devil's work of slavery beneath the sea, away from judging eyes. He hoped to find this false whale and bring them to justice. Apparently his father was a slave, and his confidence in this casistic confederate cetacean conspiracy had possibly driven him mad. At least, this was the yarn being spun to us by that smuggler Fancy Dan Fancy, who, I remind you, was also wolfing down chunks of raw fish guts. He then said that Moxon hadn't been seen in several years and might be dead. Great, I said. We've come to this tropical paradise for nothing. Not nothing, Fancy Dan Fancy replied, before slurping up a swim bladder which dangled from his lip. I know the way to Fitzburr Island, for you see, I helped Mox and cart the bird bush while off the island. He smiled; his crooked teeth were half capped with gold. Fine, then, I said. Let's go. But like most things involved in our quest, there was a problem. Fancy Dan Fancy's boat was in hawk. He needed $800 to get it back. This was money we did not have. There would be no budging on the price, as Fancy Dan Fancy had been in arrears several times previously, and his creditors would not take an I.O.U. of any kind. Heath and I left dejected and unsure of our next move. I was furious. I demanded Heath pay for my return to Taiwan— He roared back that we were this close to the end, and I wanted to slink back into obscurity. I told him not to urinate in my mouth and call it pineapple juice, which was vulgar, but also justified. We didn't speak for several days. I spent my time with some Navy men who worked at the nearby base in Pearl Harbor. War, it seemed, was possible again in Europe. I told them about the ruminations I had heard in Japanese-controlled Taiwan. With the worldwide depression, it seemed the world was howling in pain. Perhaps we'd learn nothing from the recent-ended contest. If anything, it seemed the thirst for blood was as real as ever. Maybe if we could retrieve the Ark of the Expulsion, the Tree of Knowledge could bring peace. Maybe this quest was greater than any single one of our lives.
0: Looking to get out of the ads and back to the story? Fable and Folly Plus is a new way to support the creators you love. The podcast you're listening to right now and more than 60 others can be heard ad-free for as little as $4 a month by visiting fableandfolly.com slash plus. And now, Fall of the House of Sunshine is offering episode commentary to Fable & Folly Plus supporters, still entirely ad-free. Fable & Folly Plus. Sign up today at fableandfolly.com slash plus
1: he sent me a message that I should meet him at the Puka Puka Lounge in a seedy part of Waikiki. We drank out of coconuts, which was an interesting novelty, though the liquid inside was a bitter collection of fermented fruits. Several native people were dressed in grass clothing, which the proprietor said was traditional attire. But he was from Topeka, so I'm not sure how he knew this. I asked one of the servers about the grass clothing, but she just looked at me before, saying a nervous... Aloha, and then scurried away. If it's so traditional, Heath said between sips of the terrible coconut drink, why do they all change into slacks and a shirt when their shift ends? Cause slacks are cheap, and everybody wants to be us, the proprietor said with a smile. He then went back into the kitchen, where we heard him yelling at his Chinese cooks to work faster. This also made no sense, as there was hardly any customers, and none seemed to be eating. Heath finished his drink, and then finished mine, and then ordered two more before he took out a small crumpled flyer from his pocket. Bernard, Heath said, I have the answers to our financial problems. He showed me the flyer. It had a drawing of a wooden tiki figure and the ocean. It was for a royal surfing contest, and the purse was four hundred dollars and a trophy. With such a sum, we'd be able to cover the remainder and get Fancy Dan Fancy's boat out from Pawn. Do you know how to board sir? I asked Heath. I had only seen the recreational game since coming up to the island. Young men on boards, riding the waves like some sort of Grecian nereids. Not me, Heath replied. You, Bernard. I protested. Standing on a wave was beyond my depth. Heath said he'd do it, but... He had a fear of the ocean. Apparently, as a boy in Wales, he once went to the shoreline unescorted, and there was a bevy of octopuses crawling along the rocks. Their crimson bodies oozed like living mucus, and their flailing tendrils gave the young heath such a fright, he'd never dare venture into the sea again. Even if he were to attempt riding the waves, the fear of tentacles reaching up from the brine would render him catatonic and unable to stride the surfing board i had to do it and though the contest was in three days and i was woefully unprepared i would do my best we went to the royal palace hotel which was sponsoring the contest to sign up while signing the entry form we were laughed at by practically everyone in the establishment and this was before i told them i never partook in the sport previously they mentioned that the famed duke kahanamoku was an entrant and apart from being an olympic athlete He had basically created the modern sport of surfboarding. He was a shoo-in guaranteed winner. But what they didn't know was I had gumption and the fate of the world on my side. I prayed to the Ur-Tooth as Heath and I trained. I began by balancing on a plank of wood. I had moderate success in this on dry land, less so on damp land, and even less on sand. But I kept at it. Later on in the afternoon, I tried swimming in the ocean. I had not realized the waves were so strong, and was almost carried out to sea a few times. Having no surfing board of our own, or money to purchase one, we found an old door in a pile of refuse, and I used that. Merely dragging it into the water was difficult enough, but by the second day of training, I was able to finally climb onto the door while in the surf. Granted, I was then stuck on the door, and we needed the help of a local boy and his dinghy to tow me back to shore. But the contest was the next day, and that was as much training as I could muster. I shall tell you now up front that I won the contest. I would like to attribute this to my skills, but in fact it was the result of high jinks beyond my control. Apparently the pineapple magnate James Toll had heard of my entry into the contest— At a meeting at the America's Club, he had mentioned this, saying, and I quote, but disagree, some rube nincompoop entered the surf contest with no skill and no degree. He'll end up keister over tea kettle at the first kiddie wave. To which the young heir to a sugar plantation, Dayfrig Forbes, said he'd bet a man $10,000 that I'd come in last. Dole then said he'd bet I came in first and would put a hundred grand down. Forbes called him a first-degree moron and took the bet. Apparently, Forbes and Dole had a falling out regarding attendance at a boxing match between a racehorse and a man in New Jersey, and both of them wanting to be appointed governor-general of the Philippines. Also, maybe a mistress. In any event, Dole then bribed the police to round up all the other surfers entered into the contest and hold them on bogus charges. This was easy, as most were native Hawaiian, and the police always could find a reason to detain them. While it is sad that this degree of oppression occurs, it was a lucky happenstance for me. And so, because of these millionaires and their antics, Heath and I ended up with the champion's purse and a trophy. The locals were set free soon after, and only a few were worse for wear. But with the money, we were then able to raise the rest of the needed funds and retrieve Fancy Dan Fancy's boat. And the craft was actually a decent vessel. And the smuggler was true to his word. And in less than a fortnight, we were sailing toward Fitzpur Island and the resting place of the Ark of the Expulsion.
0: Brushdown Stories is a Roy Gold production. It was written by Jonathan Goldberg with music by David Ariglieri. Bernard Glouch is James Kennedy. Find out more about the show and cast at podmusical.com. Find out what happens to all of your favorite characters on season two of The Fall of the House of Sunshine coming March 2018. Find out what happens when you challenge the Rays on season two of The Fall of the House of Sunshine coming March 2018. Thanks for listening, and have a centabulous bicuspid of a day. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.